friends, this is Missy. Welcome to Common Conversations, The Move Forward. We are so excited to have you join us today. And I personally am so excited to introduce you to Dan Cannon. He is joining us to talk about the justice system as it stands today, or the injustice system, whatever, however you feel comfortable with it. Dan's a civil rights attorney who lives in Southern Indiana. And Dan, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you pretty much said it all. You know, I've uh, been practicing in what you would call broadly civil rights law for the last 15 years. And I teach law at the University of Louisville. And um, I, I work at a firm uh, called Said and Little in Indianapolis. So doing mostly cop cases and jail cases and uh, a little bit of employment discrimination and, and that sort of thing. And I think that people probably would love to know, like, you just wrote a book and we can talk a little bit about oh, that. I thought you'd never ask about I that. I know. It's so wow. exciting. Yeah. No, I, I, I've got a book out called Pleading Out that came out in March um, that is really just sort of a... Uh, a wholesale dressing down of the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. uh, but through the lens of plea bargaining. So uh, we look at the historical practice of plea bargaining and how it sort of pervades everything that happens in the criminal justice system and leads to a whole lot of problems that I think uh, the wider public may not know about. Um, so anyway, and it, it's not as boring as it sounds. It's full of full of interesting <laughs> stories and you know about the terrible things that the justice system does to its unsuspecting victims. So we believe that there are stories that we tell ourselves to be comfortable so we can sleep at night about the systems as they exist around us. We believe that the common person may not know that the justice system isn't as they believe it is. Like it exists, they, they feel protected by that. What do you think? What are those stories that people tell themselves about the justice system? Well, I think that that for the most part, especially when we're talking about the criminal justice system, most people, most Americans are totally walled off from that system, mm -hmm. right? You know, so over time, and this is part of what I, I talk about in my book, you know, over time, we have sort of turned our criminal justice system into a conviction mill over the last 200 years or so, right? You know, so it's, it's, it's all about cramming convictions through as quickly as possible and, you know, getting as much grist for that mill as we can possibly get. It, that's, that's, that's a, a very uh, short summation of of where we are. And I think that people are still sort of stuck thinking about the criminal justice system in terms of jury trials and fact-finding and this, you know, sort of noble search for the truth kind of thing, um, which, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. If it was ever that way, it hasn't been that way for the last 200 years. But what you see on, you know, procedurals and, and, and primetime legal dramas is that, you know, okay, well, you're going to go and, you, you know, like maybe sometimes the system is unfair and maybe sometimes there's some bad actors within the system. But for the most part, this is a deeper search for the truth, right? And, we think that way because, for the most part, our only experience of the criminal justice system is a fictionalized one, right, through television or through books or something like that. And, you know, our, our criminal justice system has been very uh, successful over the years at excluding the vast majority of the people. So, you know, you've, you've got lawyers that work within the system. You've got, you know, justice-involved people that are affected by the system. You've got incarcerated people. And then, you know, those people know the trappings of the system, you know, generally very well. They look at it up close, but then there's everybody else that has no participation in that system whatsoever. And that's largely because we've eliminated the jury trial from the system entirely. And so, you know, that would that would be an ordinary citizen's you know, like main point of contact with the system. So if you're not arrested, if you're not put in jail, if you're not on the receiving end of a prosecution of some kind, the only way you really have to interface with the criminal justice system is through a jury trial. Well, we don't do that. 
We just simply don't do it anymore. And so I think that there is a romanticized notion about about the criminal justice system being the search for truth, you know, with the general public. Now, for lawyers and for people that are in my situation, we're sort of looking at it up close all the time. And still, I think there is this notion that the courts are the great equalizers, that there is something, you know, sort of majestic and sacred about the courts and about our criminal justice system because, you know, and, and lawyers think this way too, where it's, you know, uh, there's, okay, the, the the system, when it works, is a beautiful thing. There are, you know, some bad people within it. Sure, corruption happens and sure, there are these bad examples. But for the most part, you know, what we're doing is a good thing with our criminal justice system, with the courts and so on and so forth. And I mean, if you dig into the roots of the thing, it's, it's you know, it's simply not true. Uh, and I think that over the last few years, uh, you have a situation where more lawyers and more of the general public is sort of, are sort of waking up to the fact that, well, wait a minute, maybe these systems in themselves are bad and are set up to make certain people fail and set up to make, you know, to favor certain uh, groups of people. But that's hard for us to accept, right? You know, it's hard for lawyers to accept, especially when they're working within that system every day and think that they're part of, you know, positive change. So one of the things that you mentioned with the police system is that it's a grist mill, that it's just churning, quote, criminals out all of the time. I feel like the general public hears someone, well, they've pled guilty or they've been convicted and of a crime. Therefore, they are a criminal and they are bad. Can you speak to us a little bit about whether you have found in your research that those who plead guilty truly are guilty? And if they're not, why would they say they are? Well, okay. So, so well, there's a lot in there. It, it, there's there is this sort of ancient stigma that we have against you know a criminal class. Like every society, every human society has sort of had this criminal class. I mean, these are the people that do bad things and should be set apart from the rest of us somehow, or punished in some way, or you know exiled, whatever you have. And that's that's been around since time immemorial. What we've done in the United States is to is to sort of overcriminalize everything. Right, um, especially in the 20th century, we just you know have made crimes out of anything and everything, and written these you know extremely vague and broad statutes that can cover any kind of conduct whatsoever. I quote somebody in my book who says, you know, the average uh, white collar professional can sit down at a computer and commit three felonies a day and not even know it. You know that sort of thing. Um, so everything is criminalized, and at the same time, we don't necessarily look for intent. Right, uh, so you can commit all these crimes and never have intended to commit those crimes, um, and yet, even with all the sort of overcriminalization that's happened in America, the the ancient stigma that we apply to quote unquote criminals remains. And so, over time, what we've done is to create this gigantic criminal class, the largest criminal class in the history of the world. You know, we now incarcerate more people, we convict more people than I mean than any human civilization ever. Right in history, and so the effects of that are. You know, we've done it mostly via via plea bargaining, right? Because there's no other way you could do it. Um, and this is part of what I argue in my book about you know like the reason for plea bargaining to begin with is that you're you're wanting to speed up convictions as much as possible to make as many people as possible in, into this sort of lower class, this subclass, this criminal class, right? And that was the original purpose, right? You know, behind plea bargaining is to get as many of these people set apart and aside as possible, so they don't team up with each other and you know, create this fundamental change in the way we do things. 
And, and so what that leaves us with is this gigantic criminal class that, you know, not only um, is set apart from everybody else because of the stigma that we attach to criminal you know, to criminalization, but is also sort of alienated from themselves. If you look at the psychological studies that come come along with, uh, that, that look at what happens to someone, they take on the criminal label. Somebody's been labeled a criminal, not only does the rest of society believe it, but they also believe it themselves, right? So, you know, you look at the difference between somebody who is, you know, convicted by a jury. Oh, well, let's talk first. If you look at some of the difference between somebody who is, you know, gets caught for doing a crime, but is not convicted, is not labeled a criminal. That person is less likely than the person who is convicted and labeled a criminal to engage in antisocial behaviors. In other words, you know, to engage in criminal behaviors, right? To, you know, continue to go out and do more bad stuff, right? So that's one thing. The other piece of it is that by by the reason because in America we're unique in that everybody got their almost all of our quote unquote criminals got there via a plea bargain. They also believe that they've done something wrong. Right, they, we've sold this bill of goods for so long in telling people that you're, you know, look, you've got equal bargaining power with the state and all of its resources. Like you, little person who's been charged with this crime, you, it's you versus the state, and you can work out a deal, and you can just negotiate over something. And if you know, if you, if you accepted this this plea deal, well, then you entered into a contract. You said you were guilty. You entered into a contract with the state, and you got less time, or you got lesser charges, or something like that. You didn't get the death penalty, whatever the case may be. And it's just like, you know, contracting with a plumber to fix your toilet or, you know, buying a used car or something like that. And that's sort of the myth that we've sold to criminal defendants over the time. So so all these people are in this massive criminal class, for the most part, think that they deserve to be there, right, and behave accordingly. That's so interesting. And I the question that keeps coming up for me as you're talking is, how is the system benefiting from having a large criminal class? Why would our system look at itself and you know what I, I need? We need more people who believe themselves to be criminals, who then engage in antisocial behavior because they won't, one of the things you mentioned, they won't band together and fight. Exactly. So let's yeah. talk about that. What would that look like? Well, this goes back to your original question, right? If you accept that, and I think you have to when you look at the history, if you accept that the original role of the courts in American society, as it was in British society, right, where we got our court system from, if you accept that the original role of courts was were, were, were to protect certain groups of people, not everybody, Right, but the cream of the crop—they're the protectorate of capital, right? You know, as right. you we might might think about it today, uh, the protectorate of 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 the nobles, right, in British society or the aristocracy, that kind of. You know, they're protecting the the folks at the very top, right? So the law protects the people at the top and binds the people at the bottom, right? That's the idea. So as the working class grew in the industrial during the industrial revolution, the courts sort of stayed the same. Right? You know, they continued with that same purpose of like, we're going to protect the people at the top and, and we're going to protect them from the people at the bottom. Right, And as you have this swelling of the working class, particularly in New England, when you see the rise of plea bargaining, the swelling of the working class, there becomes this, this sense that we're getting outnumbered. You know, really, really badly outnumbered, right? And there's the rise of the labor movement in the early 19th century, 
And the justice system had to adapt for that, had to make changes, because there simply wasn't enough police power to go out and prosecute everybody. What they were doing uh, in the early 19th century is just prosecuting workers for getting together, for organizing. You know, you prosecute, uh, prosecute them under a conspiracy statute or something like that, right? You know, for, for trying to get together and, uh, and ask for better pay or ask for shorter work days, that sort of thing. They were prosecuting them under conspiracy statutes. There came to be this sort of sentiment that, like, we can't do this anymore. Uh, there's too many of them and not enough of us. And these are folks that would occasionally get together over the weekend and go burn a governor's house down, right? You know, so so there's this sense of, like, all right, they're, they're, we're outnumbered. We have to come up with a, a new strategy for doing this. And what better tool to use um, against the working classes than, than the criminal law. But not in the sense that we're going to go out and criminalize everybody, you know, like go, go out and arrest everybody, because you can't really do that. But what you can do is to criminalize everything and then get people into the courthouse and then start making deals with them, right? One at a time and say, all right, you know, listen, uh, you did this bad thing and uh, we got you dead to rights, but... What we're going to do here is um, you're just going to get six months of probation and you plead to this lesser charge and, you know, just go out and be a good boy for six months and we'll, you know. And so you get a conviction, you get that person, you know, sort of under the umbrella of the state. You know, then you've, 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 you've made a criminal. But to, your question is, why make so many criminals? And it's because of exactly what we talked about before. Criminals are alienated against the rest of society, right, the non-criminal society, and they're alienated against themselves. So they sort of stay in their place, right, in a way. You're not going to team up with criminals to overthrow the system, right? So you have this gigantic class of criminals. There's like a third of all American adults at this point have an arrest record or have some kind of criminal record. So that's a massive criminal class, all of them alienated from the remaining two-thirds and from each other, right? You know, because right. you're still going to attach that criminal stigma to all, you know, this 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 persists throughout time. Uh, we're not going to team up with criminals. We're not going to organize with them. We're not going to, you know, criminal justice organizing, the idea of that is a fairly new thing. You know, it's not something that, that anybody would have ever thought about for a century, right? You know, like criminal justice, you don't organize criminal justice. Like, these are people that did bad things. We're just going to put them over here in a box. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's been very successful. I think if you look at the history of plea bargaining within the criminal justice system, it's been very very successful at um, creating this broader class that isn't going to get into too much trouble with the rest of society and overthrow the existing hierarchy, right? So what you're suggesting, and one of the things that you mentioned was that the the bend of the system, the purpose of the system is not as many of us believe. And again, the thing that helps us sleep at night is that the police are there to protect us, to protect people. There is a class of people that the police will protect, but it sounds more like the police exist and the system exists to protect capital, protect property. Um, and I think that that varies wildly from the stories that we tell ourselves um, about why, you know, the police exist and why, well, if, if you're in trouble, you call the police because they're going to help you. And I, I don't know if you, if you would agree, I can't think of many examples where that is where the police are going to make the situation better. But it's totally contrary to your training as like an upper middle class white person, right? right? Especially, Very much. right? Very much. You know, where you think that that all right, well, the police for the most part are going to show up and protect people, but when they don't, and when something goes wrong, well, that's the anomaly, right? right. You know, when they when they show up uh, to to do something with the working class and they don't protect the people that they're supposed to protect. Well, you know, they don't protect everybody, or they, there's some injustice 
injustice that results, you know, what we perceive as an injustice. That, that, that's the anomaly. And, and in fact, it's you know, the anomaly is when they've protected someone who is poor or protected someone who is a person of color or protected someone that's in the under, underclass because that's not the purpose of the system. Right. And I, I think that that story is so very important to, again, like you said, this isn't the story that we're told as upper to middle-class white people, we are told that we are safe and we're protected. Um, it's hard to accept that about the courts. It's hard. Right. You know, it's hard, especially as we were talking about before, it's hard for lawyers to accept it. You know, you go through law school and you receive all this training and you think, okay, well, we're going to go out and I'm going to be Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird and everything, you know. And really, you know, it is a simple matter of, and I don't think many of us think about this, but it's a simple matter of, of looking at the system and saying, all right, you know, if we really think that there's been a fundamental change from the old common law system that we got from Britain, which again, you know, was was explicitly classist and explicitly racist, right? You know, was explicitly there just to serve, you know, the upper crust of society. When did that change? When did that when did that shift happen? When did the courts become suddenly more egalitarian? You know, was it when we adopted the Constitution right. that doesn't mention women and, you know, talks about people of color as being you know, like three-fifths of a person? Was it when we, uh, um, uh, you know, adopted the, uh, the, the Reconstruction Amendments? I mean, when was it? When mm -hmm. was it that we mm -hmm. had this, this fundamental shift in our court system to where it now is this egalitarian thing that favors all people? That never happened. You know, in fact, we have a court system that prides itself on being the same as it was mm -hmm. before, right? Mm -hmm. You know. So how is it that that's the story that we've come to believe? Is it masterful, masterful storytelling by those who are benefited? How do, when did we become a people who see the system as the answer, it's the end all be all and the heroes? Well, I mean, it's, you'd rather believe that, right? Right. You know, right. I think that's, I think you nailed it um, before when you said, well, this is, this is the, this is the thing that we want to believe. You know, we, we want to believe that the institutions that, uh, you know, we have created to govern all of us are going to catch us when we fall that are going to provide some kind of safety net and things are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a natural sort of human thing to think, you know, all right, well, I have something, you know, it's not all is lost if X happens because, you know, Y is going to save me. So if one of the questions that we ask ourselves here is what are the barriers to bringing equity to that system? It sounds like one of the things that you would suggest, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that the entire system itself is a barrier to bringing equity because it's not how it was created. But if it is the case that we have created a criminal class of one third of Americans, that number is staggering, who could organize. What hope do you see in there and what can we do to bring that equity, to begin to bring that equity? Well, it's not easy. I mean, there's no easy answers, but I think that that one thing that's been a real challenge for the legal profession is to is to shift away from looking at top-down solutions like simply using the courts and getting a great decision that then changes, you know, society forever. Like, I'm going to go out and do the next Brown versus Board of Education, right? You know, and and, and it's tough for us to, I mean, in, in reality, the era that brought us Brown versus Board was very, very short, and those were anomalous decisions with our Supreme Court, you know, within our Supreme Court. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. More? I mean, you know, during the Warren Court, Chief Justice Earl Warren's court um, in the 1950s and early 60s, you've got all these decisions that, you know, we, that sort of um, liberal-leaning people in the United States have come to regard as the, the cornerstone of our entire judicial system. 
right? You got Brown versus Board of Education and Loving versus Virginia and Miranda and all these things that that have become um, quasi-household terms over the years, right? That was an era that, you know, gave us a lot of good stuff, but it was very short. And for the most part, when you look at the broad swath of Supreme Court decisions that have happened ever since the inception of the court, they're very bad for ordinary working class people, right? Uh, and, And the lower on the social ladder you are, the worse these decisions likely are for you. And you see it, you know, very clearly now in our Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Very clearly, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think that that you're starting to see some of that romantic notion of these are what this is what the courts are for. You're starting to see some of that wash away. And and to go back to what I was saying about the legal profession, like the challenge for us is to stop looking at, you know, like, okay, we can go to a court and we can file this case and this is going to make everything better because we know that 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 really doesn't work. It doesn't really work that way, right? And for most of our history, it hasn't worked that way, except for these few anomalous times, right? Mm-hmm. That's the exception to the rule, but we treat it like it's the rule. Like lawyers treat it like it's the rule. And what we what you're seeing now within, within law schools, within the legal profession overall, I think is a slow shift to thinking about bottom-up change, right? To where... You're not centering the lawyer. There's not this hero, you know, Atticus Finch that's going out to, you know, uh, to to protect uh, the the downtrodden and so on. It, it's it's you're listening to marginalized people and you're providing them the assistance that you can to sort of become a bridge between institutions that we are supposed to be able to work within and grassroots, you know, people that, agents that want change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you are seeing some of that shift, but it's, you know, it's difficult. Um, It's difficult for us to sort of turn our thinking around after decades and decades of thinking, all right, well, this is how we're going to do things. You know, even for civic-minded lawyers, do-gooder lawyers that care about stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's been it's 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 been difficult to sort of shift our thinking away from we solve this with a lawsuit versus we solve it with you know um, other resources and support that we might be able to offer to um, whatever the movement is, whether it's incarcerated people or whether it's you know uh, protesters in the street or what have you. So you're saying bottom up change almost sounds individual. It's helping people as they come into the system, as they need help, and then resourcing them, getting them the things they need to move through the world in a safer way, such as housing, food. Is that kind of what we're thinking? Well, uh, it could be. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of providing support to, to larger movements, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. So generally speaking, top-down change to a lawyer is going to be individual. I'm going to take this individual yes. case, right? And I'm going to litigate this case, and it's going to make a, a broader impact on, on society. Providing support for movements, you know, looking at what the needs of a movement are, um, is, is necessarily a collective viewpoint and not an individual one. Wonderful. So moving into a community mindset. So one of the questions then that comes up when you mention that the good, those bedrock cornerstone cases that we can name, and I'm even thinking Obergefell, which Mm -hmm. is you. I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, you've heard of it, you've heard of it. For those who don't know, um, Dan and his team led the uh, fight to make same-sex marriage legal at the Supreme Court level. So those anomalies, those beautiful anomalies that we can name those cases. Good work on naming that case, by the way. Everybody mispronounces that, but you nailed it. Obergefell, good job. We talk about it a lot in our spaces. Um, How do we make those the norm and not the anomaly? Well, uh, 
that is the $64,000 question, right? You know, um, and it just starts with organization and education. And, you know, certainly we have a, a role to play at the law school and we're trying to do that, you know, um, in terms of educating a new generation of lawyers as to uh, how do you adapt to this rapidly changing um, environment? How do you, you know, how do you still make the change that you wanted to make when you came into law school when everything around you is in total chaos, right? right. You know, and it's, you know, it's something that you have to just constantly reevaluate. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for that, but I think it's something that is constantly being reevaluated and we don't know what the world is going to look like six months from now. Sure. But you, I mean, like that's why it's incumbent on us to, to train activists and to train lawyers to be adaptive and to be flexible and to be, you know, just sort of like, all right, you know, here's, here's chaos and you have to learn how to thrive within chaos. One of the things that you mentioned was thinking communally and having activists and, and systems in place to do that. One of the things that we had kind of spoken about before we even got started was in Southern Indiana, though there's a black hole that doesn't exist. How can we stand together? What would that look like, that beginning organizing piece to help people to make change that is in the best interest of the majority rather than the minority of power brokers? Well, I think the good news is that it can be done, right? And you and there's roadmaps for this. Um, in the last chapter of my book, I talk about you know people that are doing this all over the country, the people that have that have that have successfully organized grassroots grassroots campaigns to change public opinions about uh, discrete issues on criminal justice, right? So I think it can be done. Um, it's just, you know, uh, obviously quite difficult, <laughs> right. you know, um, especially in the Midwest and in the South where you don't have the kind of organizational support that you might have in the Northeast or in California. And, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about is that there, there, there's simply, uh, there, there aren't too many home organizations. There is, in fact, no organization that I'm aware of within a hundred mile radius that is devoted to criminal justice issues that also has an advocacy arm that has, that has lawyers that are there prepared to file cases and do, you know, whatever lawyer stuff. Um, there's the there's the state ACLU chapters, um, but they're bogged down with 50 different issues, right? And there is no there is no criminal justice organization. Now, you know, something like so, somebody dies at Rikers Island and 20 different community organizations are getting together and putting people in the streets and they're filing lawsuits and they're doing all the stuff they have to do. And we simply don't have that kind of response available to us Can in this region. Can we speak to that a little bit? You mentioned if a person died in Rikers, then there would be an immediate response because of the organizers who focus on this and who are paying attention. When nine people have died in LMDC and yeah, the, more than Rikers, more than Rikers so over the last six months. I think that we really need to highlight that more people have died in the Louisville Metro Department of Corrections than have died in Rikers, and that population. Oh, I can't think even yeah, compare. My recollection is is, and I may have this wrong, is that Rikers holds about fifteen thousand people. And LMDC holds 2,000, 2,500 at the most. So right. seven times the population. Right. And we have had more people die in the previous months. And yet it's almost silent. There are certain pockets of people who are paying attention and who notice. But for the most part, the fact that we have more people dying in Louisville Metro Department of Corrections than we have in Rikers Island is silent. The streets are quiet. Incredible. Yeah. So there is space and there is room for a group of activists if they had, if they wanted to champion and they could champion something, that is what Southern Indiana is missing. Yeah. I mean, Southern Indiana, uh, Kentucky, the entire Midwest, you know, <laughs> between here and Chicago. Um, there's, there's, um, there, there are a few organizations, formal organizations that are devoted to criminal justice reform. None of them have an advocacy arm. And 
the the few that are out there, as you know, are are tend to be poorly resourced and bogged um, down and bogged down and bogged down because this stuff is happening, you know, um, at an enormous rate everywhere all the time. So, it, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. What I tell my students every semester, it's like, you know, if you really want uh, to go out and affect change, go start yourself a nonprofit organization that that just crams the courts full of lawsuits, you know, and, and civil lawsuits uh, about every instance of police misconduct. Because the reality for the lawyers that are out there now, number one, there aren't that many of us that do civil rights cases, um, especially in the federal courts, because the federal courts are terrible and you can't make any money doing it. It's hard to make money. And it's easier to do, you know, personal injury or family law or something like that, right? You know, so why do civil rights law? Um and we, the few of us that are out there that are doing that work can only take the worst of the worst cases. So maybe we take, you know, one out of every hundred cases that we get calls on. The worst of the worst. People are dead. People are quadriplegics. People have lost an eye or a limb or something like that, right? You know, it can only take the worst of the worst. Nobody's out there really litigating the garden variety beatdowns that aren't worth, you know, um, at least six figures. So, so somebody needs to be out there doing that work with independent funding, and I think if you could do that, you could start to swing, uh, possibly swing a little bit of change through the courts. But again, that's me thinking top down like I was trained to do, <laughs> which is not probably not the best way to enact systemic change. But it's, it's a stone in the road. So you friends, for those of you who are listening, who are saying, how can I help? So what I'm hearing is that there is room for organi- organizing. There's room for um, having an advocacy arm in these groups that have attorneys who can who can work in the courtroom. How do people get started to do that? And how would they do that? Those of us who are not attorneys, how can they, how can we jump in outside of the courtroom? Well, the first thing you have to do is just seek out like-minded people, as many of them as you can, and grow your network when network as big as you can possibly grow it. And, you know, that's that's easier said than done. But there obviously there are organizations in the region that are doing this kind of work. So you can seek them out and ask, you know, ask those community organizers, ask the leaders of those organizations, the people that have been there for a while, how you can help and what their needs are. And and that's that's not just what ordinary folks ought to be doing. I mean, like, yeah, that's what lawyers ought to be doing too. You know, going to law school is still a great path. I mean, I, I know that that there's a lot of cynicism about this now because you look at the state of the courts and you look at the state of the law and you're like, whoa, nothing matters. Like none of <laughs> none of these Denialism none of these law. rules, yeah, none of these rules that we thought matter before matter now. And so I'm getting a lot of this from my students, this sort of, yeah, exactly. As you say, nihilistic view of things where it's like, man, you know, I paid all this money for this degree and now it's just, you know, I'm seeing that everything is ad hoc and nothing matters. But the truth of the matter is that it's always kind of been that way, right? Everything's always kind of been chaos within the system, especially for the people at the bottom of the ladder, right? Um, And you can learn, I mean, I think that lawyers are still very good and very much necessary to um, being able to navigate those systems, being able to figure out, you know, what might make sense in this situation and what might not, you know, what might not. Um, and, you know, it, it, you need people on the inside of institutions that understand what makes those institutions tick. And that's what lawyers are supposed to do. Um, those people need to be giving, you know, aid to community organizations, as we said. Um, but there's certainly a role for, for those folks. But, you know, I mean, you're asking a, Uh, a hammer to identify nails. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, Dan, tell us, because I'm sure people are going to hear this and they're going to want to do this work that you 
you're suggesting? How would they find you? Where can they find you? Where can they find your work? Um, and how can they connect with you? Oh, okay. Well, I'm at Dan Cannon, D-A-N-C-A-N-O-N, Cannon like the camera, uh, on just about all social media. Um, so, you know, look me up there. You can grab my book if you're so inclined from wherever you'd like to get books. Um, it's available just about everywhere uh, in most of the big brick and mortar stores. And around here, um, go get it at Carmichael's. Carmichael's has been lovely throughout this whole process. Yes, um, And uh, uh, yeah, so, so there's that and then I am perched at the University of Louisville for the foreseeable future so you know come on by and we'll get a coffee wonderful Dan thank you so so much for joining us today thank you for having me